Romans chapter 6, if you'll turn there. Now, I was here, uh, for those of you who remember a few weeks ago, I could probably preach the same sermon all over again, but uh, because I know you don't pay any attention. But the, uh, <laughs> no, but I want to follow up. I looked in Romans chapter 5, if you'll recall, when we were here, and, and on how the, the effects of sin, what it is that has happened, Adam's fall uh, that has happened to us, and on how, you know, one man's sin you know, entered into the world by one man. It all happened. And then sin abounds, he says, if you'll recall. It's no, not, not content just to be there, it abounds. And then ultimately, Paul says, sin reigns. But then the ramifications of that, if you'll recall, as we went into, he says, death entered. And then death abounds. And then he says, death reigns. It takes over. And these things suck us in and destroy our lives. And uh, we find the sin never content until it, 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 it kills us, destroys us. And yet then Paul then, he says, but then grace entered. And grace hyperabounds, he says, and it rains. And that's the issue within our lives today, grace. It rains within us. We can sit here today and say, I'm a child of God for no other reason than God's grace. We didn't earn it. Never can, never will, no matter, you know, whatever it is, you know, that we can do or say or as hard as we can try. Here I've been a Christian now, well, over, uh, well, 55 years. And, uh, and yet at the same time, I realize within me, I still, after all these years, I, you know, there being a Christian, I, I, I was convinced early on. Because I was serious about it when I really gave myself to the Lord, when I really made some, did some business with him. And I thought, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it with all my heart. And I was convinced, well, I'm going to be better. And yet I can tell you today, sadly, I'm no different. In terms of my own nature, it is still there. Though at the same time, many things have changed within my life and my behavior and my relationships. There is still a nature within me that is capable of anything that it was many years ago before I knew him. Still capable of saying and doing and behaving. You know, the knee-jerk reaction, the self, the arrogance, the nastiness, the covetousness, all of these things, the anger, the hostility, it's all still there. And yet God's grace, he still forgives me, still looks at me, he says, no, you're no better, but I am. And the issue in the Christian life is that the Lord looks at us and says, I'm not here to make you any better, I'm here to replace you. I'm here, you know, to take over. Well, here as he, we get into chapter 6 today, Paul writes and he says, Well, what then shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized unto Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism unto death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk in the newness of life. For if we were planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old man is crucified with him and that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ... We should believe also that we shall live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, and death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died to sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Well, likewise, 
Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto God, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Lord, we thank you for your word. And as we look at this section of scripture this morning, we ask that you would just bring it to our own heart, make it practical. Help us to understand, Lord, what you're saying about us here. That this is our position before you. This is how we stand before you. This is why you can continue to love us and care for us and extend your goodness to us. Because of the finished work of Jesus, not because of anything within us. And Lord, we ask that as we look at this that today, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand. And Lord, that you would strengthen our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here, Paul now, he kind of drops, when you would stop to look at this, I'm some, some pretty shocking statements, some pretty unbelievable statements. It's like, like you know, bombshell almost going on. There, as he tells us there in verse 2, he says, God, How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer therein? The Bible says what? The Bible says that you, that me, we're dead to sin. And he says, how if I'm dead to sin, do we live any longer therein? Now, there's something inside of me, you know, and particularly if my wife's sitting next to me, this says, I know him. I can assure you, he is not dead to sin. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's very, it's very real. It's very much that, you know, around within our lives and our behavior. We haven't arrived at all in heaven. And he says, then he goes on, he says, well, don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized unto his death? That when we were baptized, and hopefully as a Christian, this is something that's happened because it's symbolic of me identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on my behalf. He went to the cross. He died, he was buried, he rose, he ascended, and then when I come to him, that now becomes my position in him. That I too, from God's perspective, he says, now you have died, and you've been buried, and you have risen. This morning, interesting, I opened up, you know, checking my email uh, earlier this morning, and I received a, an email from a man, he told me that, he says, I'm 80 years old today, and he said, I was thinking about you. And he reminded me, I don't remember it. Asked me if I remember it. He says, you baptized my wife and I by 50 years ago. There down at Corona Del Mar, the beach there with hundreds and hundreds. They were baptized constantly. And he says, you, were bapt you, you baptized us. And he said, though, he reminded me, he says, I don't remember this, what he said. He says, when you were walking my wife and I out into the water, you said, let's go bury you too. And essentially, that's what's going on. That's something there where, where God looks and says, I want to bury you. Understand you've been buried with Christ. That's what he's done. But also, because he is risen, you too are risen that you should be able to walk in newness of life. And he says, for he that is dead, he's freed from sin. And so here is this my position. Every one of us, if you've received Christ... The Bible says you're, you're dead. You're dead to sin. You're something there that God, your position before him is you're perfect. You will never be. 
a billion light years into eternity, you'll never be any more perfect than you are right now in your position. The, when Jesus said it is finished, the work was so complete of your salvation, your identity, your forgiveness, his atonement for you, and his resurrection on your behalf is that you've not only been raised with Christ in the eyes of God, the economy of heaven, you're also perfect in his eyes. You have been, you've been risen with Christ. You presented faultless before God. And God says your position. Now that brings up, you know, something that should be an argument within us somewhat of then why does this problem go on? We looked at that a little in Romans 5. Well, now he's not done with it. He comes back and in here, chapter 6, he says in verse 11, and that's where we want to sit here for a while. He says, likewise, reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here, Paul, he gives us here a number of, uh, of operative words. Of words there that he looks at, and he, he goes on, he says, for sin shall not have dominion over you. And we may look, and he said, well, it certainly seems to. Uh, just, I'm, I'm struggling constantly with it. Why have I all this time and all these years? Something there that's determined to, not, to, to have dominion over me, to dominate me. Well, here he gives us some operative words, and they're not just suggestions in addition to, to add to your theological library or something. These, these are absolutely vital to our growth in Christ, to our maturity. The only difference between one Christian and another, in a sense, is the application of these words that we'll look at. One of them has applied them to their life. One of them has gone through these things. You've got two Christians, both saved, both in, in heaven, perfect before God, presentless, presented faultless through Christ. And, and, he, and yet one of them is still experiencing the old life and is having dominion over them. It's controlling them in ways that just drag them down. And the other isn't. What's the difference between the two? Well, here he tells us. He lays it out. Verse 11, he says, Likewise, reckon ye yourselves also to be dead indeed unto sin. And the first word that Paul says, if you want to have victory within your life, it, the first word is reckon. Reckon. That word essentially means to consider something as fact. You know, you get, you know, some couple of these old farmer guys sitting out on the porch and one of them with a little stick of wheat sticking out of his mouth looking at something. He said, well, I reckon. And maybe they don't know what's going on and how it's happened, but they looked there and said, but I believe that's true. I reckon it. And here Paul looks there and he said, I, the first thing you've got to do is consider yourself to be one. You reckon. You just simply look there and you reckon yourself as somebody who has died to sin. Though there's all sorts of internal feeling and thought that's contrary to it. And here we look there and we realize I still have this sinful nature. I still have these problems. I don't feel like I'm dead to it. And at the same time, he says, well, it never dies to us, you know, in one sense. Until we go to heaven, then it will. But our battle here is that we are to die to it. And that's a choice. That's what we need to do and say, I want to die to it. And, you know, Christianity essentially tells us as terrible as the past is for many of us, as wicked as it is, as miserable as it is, as pathetic. I can, all of us, so be able to look back and realize, yeah, man, outside of him, don't even want to talk about it. 
But yet something so wonderful, so glorious has happened that outweighs everything else that has been there. Something has happened there that, that absolutely transcends everything that I am and I've done and, were, and what has occurred within me. It outweighs the sin in my life. As for, as when Christ died, he died for all the sins of all the world of all time, we're told. But here the thing is, is that now when we find ourselves, the big thing that we need to do is just reckon that's so. To reckon that this has been done. Many years ago when I first came to Christ in college, and I started going to this church, and they had a big college group, and I met a fellow that we became friends. And he invited me over to his home one time, and I went to his home, and it was a beautiful home. He had just a gorgeous home. His father owned a bunch of businesses. And he had one of these big, huge drives there. Go out in front of it. Big piece of property. Big old swimming pool. Tennis courts. And I'm looking at all this. It was like a guy lived at a country club. And just a gorgeous, you know, big, big home. Big piece of property. Gardens and everything. Just manicured. So beautiful. And, and somehow, I think we played tennis or something for a little while. <laughs> on his tennis court and swam or something. And then we're sitting in the kitchen and talking. And as we're talking, I said something to the effect, and his mom was there. And I said, you know, must be pretty nice growing up here. It was another side of the tracks from my life. But anyway, it must be nice. And they kind of smiled together. And I said, well, it always wasn't this way. And it was said in such a way like, oh, what did, I mean, it was, what do, you, what do you say? Well, then they told me the story. And this family, they actually, his name was Harold, he was adopted into this family. And they already had two children. I, I knew those other children, the older children, and uh, that they had their own natural children. But they had been, they were a wonderful Christian family, deeply loved the Lord, very successful. Looked at all that they had and the blessings in their life. And they realized, you know, we, we want another child. But with all the children in the world that don't have any homes... And don't have a family. Instead of just going and having another one, they've just felt as they prayed about it, we want to adopt somebody. They got in touch with an adoption agency in Los Angeles that handled foreign adoptions. Their instructions essentially that they gave them was find somebody that was perhaps one of the most troubled children. Very unlikely that they would maybe be adopted. And we will take them. Well, it was a very expensive process. You know, to go through all of the legal issues, going over, finding this orphanage that they dealt with, I believe, was in Hungary. And they go and they end up going back and forth. They find this boy, this young boy at the time, I was six or seven years old. He had been placed in a number of homes, uh, foster homes, and each time was sent back for one reason or another. And they said, well, we found somebody. Pretty troubled kid. The likelihood, you know, I mean, it, it, he probably would never be adopted. They said, we will take him on the spot. They paid all the money, whatever, everything it was. They had to fly somebody over there that handled all the legal things over there, goes through the adoption process, gets all this done. And in the process of the adoption, they literally issue a new birth certificate and a new name, a new identity, there and that when they put him on an airplane, which he, of course, had never been on anything like this. And then that person that did the paperwork flies back to America and landed in Los Angeles. The moment that plane touched down, he was now a new person. He had a new name. He had a new family, he had a new identity, he had a new birth certificate. And here at the same time, he didn't speak a word of English. 
They named him Harold. You know, just he brought, chose that name. He didn't know anybody named Harold and at all, but they're trying, and he didn't speak English. They didn't really, they've learned a little bit of Hungarian. They go down and pick him up at LA, X, and they drive him home and they had a little welcoming party for him with relatives. They're all over and the cousins and the other family there to meet him and to welcome him in the family. And so, of course, this little kid, he, doesn't, he has no idea what's going on. None at all. And all they know is they're calling him Harold, and he didn't know who Harold was. You know, I don't know who this Harold guy is, but boy, he's got it made here. <laughs> That's pretty cool. He went along with it somehow or another. They had a barbecue in the back. And as they have a barbecue, they're handing out, making, you know, hamburgers for everybody. And they noticed when they gave him a hamburger that he grabbed the hamburger. He was very protective of it. On his little plate, he goes over and sits in a corner and his eyes are watching. And, you know, pr- you know protecting his hamburger. Expecting to have to fight for it somehow. And the other kids, they realize, well, that's odd, but he's holding it, you know, taking a bite out of it. The other kids, they just give them all, they're all getting hamburgers. One of the kids sitting next to him took his eyes off his plate. He reached over and grabbed the hamburger off his plate, holds it, makes a fist. He's ready to fight for it. And they, hey, what are you, you know, the kids are, what, what did he do? You know, it's not, don't, don't let him have it. Don't worry about it. That, you know, they, under, they, they figure, you know, but then next thing you know, Another kid, and another kid, and another burger, another burger, until he had 11 hamburgers (laughs) all on his plate, and he's wondering why nobody's fighting him. Nobody's jumping him. Nobody's going on. And the kids are, you know, confused about this at all, but they ended up, they also gave him his own bedroom. He never had a bed, never had his own bedroom, never had anything. They filled the the bedroom there with clothes and toys. You know, he's got this bed, everything. It's just incredible, you know, and, I, and he's here, he's got a name on the door, it says Harold, you know, that they put there trying to teach him his name, and they're trying to, you know, work and get a little English, they're doing a little Hungarian. And so the first night as he goes to bed, they put him in there. Well, they never th- even thought anything about this, but the ki- his room was right off the kitchen. Well, everybody goes to bed that night. The next morning, mom wakes up, goes to make breakfast, and she opens up like the refrigerator, looks around. The food's gone. The food's it, it, basically everything is stripped. Opens up the refrigerator, and it's gone. Hey, what's going on? They go in there. Now Harold has spent basically all night getting all the food, hiding it somewhere in his room there. And they looked in there, and they wait. well, what do we do? Well, let him have it. You know, so they said, you can have all this. There's more. We'll get all you need. You'll never, don't, you'll never be hungry again. Don't worry about these things. They're just realizing the world he came from. And, uh, and his whole identity, survival of the fittest, dog eat dog, you just got to do what you got to do. And that was his entire world. And, but then they, they, they took stuff and they hear this, they put his name on it. Here, this is you. You can have it anytime. You can keep it in here. But they had to take, you know, some of the stuff that needed to be refrigerated back in there, but they would put Harold on it. And it was a, a couple of weeks before they realized they ended up having to get him a new bed because he took the cheese and he hid it between the mattresses. And by the time they found out about that, <laughs> but it was just this whole world that this kid, and basically, you know, what, what, what happened was is that, that the battle that went on, the struggle there, well, the only answer to this thing is that he had to reckon that something outside of himself having nothing to do with him whatsoever, there is some force, some being, something out there that loved him, cared for him more than he imagined the word to mean. 
So much so as that we give him a whole, whole new home, a whole new world, a whole new identity, a whole new name, a whole new culture, a whole new everything, and bring him into it. But the word simply there that having to do that is you just simply accept it as done. You can only, you can't reason it. Why would they love me? Nobody's loved me like this. Nobody's cared for me like this. Why would they do this? The issue is in life isn't trying to figure that out. You're trying to figure out the love of God for us. Trying to figure out his concern, his care. Why he has done this. That's the economy of heaven. That's the power of, of love that we don't know. We don't understand this side of heaven. We get glimpses of it. We're trying to figure it out. But to realize, fundamentally, God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, if you want to have victory within your life, you reckon this to be done for you. You reckon that you've been brought into a whole new world. You've got a whole new life, and you've got something there. You know, here, Harold, he was just transported from one side of the planet to the other. We've been transported from one end of eternity to the other. We've been brought from hell into heaven. And we've been brought into an entirely different new identity. And here, though, the Bible just simply says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things have become new, Period. And the issue within the Christian life is reckoning, is accepting this is done. You can spend all your life trying to figure it out, trying to understand it. But the very first thing, if you want victories, is you just sit there and say, I believe that. I believe that I am a new creation. And basically, when it comes to the old life, the Bible says, forget it. Forget it. You don't speak that language anymore. That's not your culture. That's not your world. It's all changed, and now you just simply accept it. I'm not, and, and you just simply say, in a sense, forget it. Forget what you have done, what's been done to you, all of these things of this entire, how you lived in Hungary, how you survived in Hungary, how you spoke, how you behaved, all the criteria of human behavior, it's changed. But the Christian there at the base, they, they, they reckon that to be so. Does that give you victory? No. No, it begins it, though. It's the first operative word. He says, if you can't get over this word, you can't apply this word, you can't do it, you're not going to get very far. Because then he's not done. He then turns there after he says, reckon yourself to be dead unto sin and alive unto God through Jesus Christ. You just simply, I just accept it. I just accept it as fact. Am I done? No. He then goes on and he says, Now let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the last thereof. The next word. He says, Now if you accept this, now he says, Let not sin reign. He looks there now to you and me, after I reckon this to be so, I can sit here right now and you can reckon this to be so, every one of us. You'll never understand it. At least this side of heaven, perhaps we will then. Uh, but here it's something, he says, the second thing, the word there, he says, now don't let sin reign. Basically, he says, stop it. Stop it. There, and, uh, you know, they, uh, and this is your business. This is now he looks at you and he says, this is your choice. This is what you must need to do. You need to be one that you stop the forces that have run your life. Your culture, your, your language, your behavior, survival of the fittest, all this, you look there and says, this is not going to rule over me anymore. 
these, these things of this nature and this whole thing, I want to stop its reign within me. It is not going to do that. All the language, all the behavior of the past, all of these former things. And today, I mean, every one of us, how many things do we have in our life that mock us? That look, they're so, you're a Christian, are you really? <laughs> Who do you think you're fooling? Who do all you sit in church? You sing some songs. You raise your hands. You get a tear in your eyes now and then. Oh, but look at you. Who do you? Who, you're not kidding anybody. We both know your nature. We know the language. We know the behavior. We know what goes on in the deep recesses of your heart and your life. Come on. Who are you kidding? But here Paul says there to that voice that says that within us, you know you're born and hungry. You know the language. You know the behavior. This is what you are. You're a phony. You're phony. You don't fit in this family. Whatever they want to say and they've adopted you or whatever else. It isn't you. Not you at all. And it mocks us and it's there. And until seemingly somehow or another, one of the next key things is something happens within somebody that their foot down and says it's over. It is over. I want it over. They get so frustrated or we get so embarrassed of this old life coming back that finally something happens where we declare war on it. You will not reign in me. You've been reigning. You've ruined my life. You've ruined relationships. I don't like it and I don't want it. But something has to happen now within you. And Harold had to decide, am he going to learn his name? Is he going to learn the language? Is he going to learn the culture? Is he going to learn the world? Which he was now brought into. And that is our choice. That is something where we, instead of entertaining or just going on and, oh, I don't mind, I'm not all that bad or whatever else. No, we look there and say, I want it out. Years ago, uh, we lived in a place where a neighbor lady of ours, she was an elderly lady, and she just started feeding cats. I don't know what happened, but she had cats all over the place. Many cats, just feeding them all. And, uh, and uh, cats were, you know, roaming around the neighborhood, and she just loved feeding cats. And, uh, and then one day, because she got quite elderly, you know, her family came, and uh, they sold the home and moved her off to a place there where old people that feed cats can live or something. But anyway, when she moved, they, they didn't take the cats. The cats were all left behind. And we had one that was just kind of somehow or another, it just parked in our yard. It would be on the roof of our garage. It would be in, you know, all around, but it was just, it was wild. And, and it, you know, I'm, now I know some of you like cats. God bless you. I'm not, I, I, this is an illustration. If you like them, how many of you have a cat? Just so I, okay, first of all, I don't want to get into this at all. <laughs> because just, I mean, I'll just say this. You're lying. You do not have a cat. You do not. You can tell who has who. You may have a dog. You do not, nobody has a cat. You can tell who has who by who comes when they're called. You call a dog and the dog comes to you. You have a dog. But basically, a cat rules. You, the cat only, it is around when it wants something. From you, you go get it for the cat. Cats have people. People don't have cats. But anyway, I'm not real fond of them. But my wife, we had a cat. And anyway, this cat, they just look around, it's wild. And so you try, well, let's be friendly, let's look, you know, but nothing. No matter what we did, just this wild cat, but it was constantly fighting with our cat. 
beating our cat up miserably. Our cat's declawed and stuff, and we outside the window at night, we hear, you know, and thing going. And our poor cat come hobbling in, beat up, and I wasn't all that excited about this cat, but something inside, you've got to protect this, you know, it's helpless against this cat. Well, it just went on and on. Next thing you know, this other cat. At night, it would come in through, we had a cat door, and it would come in through the cat door and eat our cat food. Our cat's cat food. That we, you know, and, and that, you know, and then it would come into our house one time, and then we, we'd sit there, and you could actually see it come through the cat door sometimes during the day, and it'd come in, look around, work its way, and you sit there, but as soon as you got a boom, right out, it's gone. No matter what. And this cat, it just goes on. Well, finally, one time it comes in and it jumps up on the sink. And something at that point, something snapped inside of me. This cat is going. This cat has to go. It, I, can't, I, I, I couldn't take it any longer. But I didn't know how to catch it. Well, it came in at night. We had these little intercoms that you could, baby intercom that you could put in a room and hear the baby cry. And then you have one in your room so you knew what's going on. I took the intercom and I put some hard cat food on it right on the top of it. And, you know, it's because it came in at night. We had a door going out of our bedroom that was just right around. And so I went, sure enough, two or three in the morning, I hear this cat chewing away. That cat, I go running out that door. I had a towel. And I was going to stuff it in the cat door, you know, so it couldn't get out and then go get it. Well, as soon as I go running as fast as I can to the cat door, the cat hears me some, gets out the cat, out the door, quick, goes over about eight, ten feet, and sits there and looks at me like, what are you bothering me for at two in the morning? I was having dinner, you know, or something. It just sits there, stares at me. I stare at it. All it did was get me more upset. I am going to get that cat no matter what else. The next night, I set the whole thing up, do it all over again, only I leave our door open. It hurt. It, no, I, it, uh, me open the door. So I, I, I'm leaving the door open. It's like 35 degrees outside. It's freezing. And I'm going to bed, and my wife, she says, she closed it. I said, honey, you can't close the door. Why can't I close it? You know, we got to, I'm going to get that cat tonight. And, I, and here's me. i got to be able to get right out the door, you know, there. And she says, no, we're not. We're, this is crazy. You're not doing that. I said, yes, we are. I'm going after that cat. And she goes, I know, what, this is ridiculous. And I looked at her. I can remember telling her. I said, do you realize this is exactly why our country is in such terrible shape? Nobody has principles any longer. <laughs> Nobody has anything they're willing to fight for any longer. They won't take a stand any longer. And if we can't take a stand on an invasion like this, when can we stop it? You know what I'm saying? She's looking at me. Well, next thing I know, so I leave it open. I go running out. And when it happens, and this time I get there and I stuff it in there. And then I go, we had a dog. Next thing I know, I'm going around trying to find it. The dog is upstairs with the kids. I hear the dog barking. I go up there, get a box, get a towel, throw it on this cat. Pack the cat into a box. And I take that cat, that cat off, and I gave it a nice little ride. And, uh, and I get home about 4.30 in the morning, and 6 o'clock, I had a Bible study discipleship group of men we met. I'm beat to death. I'm exhausted. But I walked in there, this thing, and I looked like terrible, I suppose. But how are you doing? I said, I'm doing great. And I told him about the victory, the battle, <laughs> the war that was won. And I'll never forget when I'm climbing back into bed like 4.30, my wife, she whispers to me, Oh, you great white hunter, you, you know, <laughs> mocking me. Had no idea the pleasure I had at that moment. But at any rate, here's something until we have something in our life that, that lurks around and our behavior that we just live with. We just tolerate it. It comes on and, and, and into our heart, into our life. And it's just eating away at us. 
and of our own nature, our own nastiness, our own covetousness, our own anger, our own hostility, but we live with it. It mocks us, but until something happens that we look there and say, no, it's not going to rain anymore. Until something happens that we foot, put our foot down and we're willing to go to war. We're willing, if, you know, to, 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 if I got to sit up at night and have my Bible open and praying and saying, God, I want victory in this area of my life. It just doesn't slide away. It just doesn't go fade away. It just doesn't, oh, well, I'm going to be better naturally. It doesn't happen. It happens because somebody looks there and they reckon something to be dead and now they look at it, that very thing that they reckon to be dead, they now look and said, you are not going to reign over me. And they seriously look at it. They seriously look and say, I'm not going to have you reigning anymore. I'm not going to live with you. And they begin to pray. And they begin to ask the Lord to come and to give them victory. And here, well, now, okay, am I, am, I, am I done now? Have I arrived? Do I have victory now? Now that here, you know, I've reckoned it to be dead, and now I've gone to war. Do I have victory now? Nope. Not yet. Another word. For there he goes on in verse 13, he says, And neither yield ye your members. Here there was something, he now looks there, and he says, you know, to him, he says, you know, he's not playing around. Paul is looking at something, he says, this is the real battles of life. You reckon it to be dead, it's not gone, it'll come back. And don't let it reign over you. And now he looks there and he says, it's still lurking around. Don't yield to it. Don't yield to it. Because at the same time, these things, as I said earlier, they're still with us. No matter how long you've been a Christian, they are still by nature within you. Hopefully by these things, they're being minimized. I reckon it. I go to war against it. It's not going to rain. But it's being minimized. But it's not finished. This side of heaven. You know, when you remember a lot of these, there's so many of these movies that come out. You know, they always have a, a sequel. You know, every time that it's kind of like something great happens. I remember when I was a kid. Maybe some of you remember these. There's a movie called The Blob. The Blob. It is one of these sci-fi, whatever, you know, somehow or another, this Martian ooze arrived in the earth and somehow or another it could feed on anything. And it just starts rolling around this big blob and it just absorbed everything that it hit, you know, just took it over and got bigger and bigger. They couldn't stop it. They're fighting it with everything. They got the military in. They got planes flying on there, dropping stuff on it, doing anything. They can't kill this thing. And it's going to take over the world if they can't stop it. And finally, somehow or another, I can't remember how it is, but they stumble on the reality that if, it, if, if it's frozen or if it's cold, it stopped growing. And they could contain it. And so the movie ends up, they come down to the very end of the movie where they've got this gigantic transport that they've now been, you know, doing everything they can to cool this thing off, shooting it with everything frozen or whatever, and they've got it stopped. And this gigantic transport is now to take it off to drop it there up in the North Pole or something there, you know, and then and the stop. And just as the plane is taking off, as it's going, a little piece of it just drops from the plane and it rolls off into the, you know, the wilderness. 
sequel. <laughs> you sit there and say, ah, there's another one, another Blob 2 movie coming. You know, they always have a sequel, always have something there where it's going to come back. Well, that's what sin does. No matter what we kind of do, it always has something there within us. That's the glorious thing between this life of sanctification where I'm practically learning to apply, but yet still have this nature and glorification where the nature will be gone. The nature of the desire to sin, the nature of sin within, the battle that's going on, the battle will have entirely ceased. I'll be conformed to his image. There'll be no more sin, death, hell, or the devil, or tempter, or temptation. What a glorious thing it'll be, but there won't, the battle will finally cease. But until then, Paul says no. God looks at us and he says, I would give my life for you. Will you for me? If you want victory, you've you got to reckon it. You've got to go to war against it. You've got to decide you are not going to yield to it at all if you truly want victory. And you know what's interesting? That morning, after I dropped the cat off, and, uh, you know, I, 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 I head to this Bible study, I ended up talking to the guy, tell him about, the, you know, the battle that I'd had and the victory I'd won, kind of, and things. And they said, now, wait a minute, one of them asked me, what'd you do with that cat? Oh, I took it off. I, I put it in you know, a box. <laughs> I went out through the Santa Ana riverbed, a big dry riverbed. And on the other side of it was a military Air Force base. I went on the other side of the base. I went over there into San Bernardino, quite a ways over. And I dropped the cat off over there, you know, on a street somewhere. The guy looks at me, he says, that was it. I said, yeah. And he says, <laughs> he starts laughing. He thinks it's hilarious. He says, Don, that cat's already back home. I said, no, no, I, you kid, you know, he said, oh, no, no, that, that cat, it, it is coming home. It's, you know, and then next thing I know, I start hearing all these stories, you know, about cats finding their owner. They move to Cincinnati. It gets there somehow or another, <laughs> buys a ticket, gets on a boat, train or whatever. Somehow or another, you hear all these stories. There was a song. Somebody gave me a record, a music a song years ago. The cat came back the very next day. And, you know, there's this old song, you know, I thought he was a gunner. And this guy, the whole song is dealing with this cat that he can't do with. And until finally he kind of blows up the entire planet. But the last verse is, well, the cat came back the very next day. Thought he was a gunner. He can blow up the world. And they just thought it was hilarious. And he said, it's back. I'm sure it's back. Well, I go home and a couple weeks later, one night we're having dinner. As we're having dinner, one of the boys said, Dad. I said, yeah, what's the cat's back? No, it's not back. Yeah, we saw the cat. The cat is back. No, it can be. Well, a few days later, I see the cat's back. Now I had to go to battle all over again. It's like the Lord said, you really, you know, and it said, do you really want victory? Sometimes in our lives, do you really mean business? Do you really, truly want to deal with this thing? And this time, I, you know, I wanted to, to, I don't want to tell you what I wanted to do, but I ended up, it was so, I had to go through the whole process again. I had to go through the whole battle again. And there, because it was so hard, now the cat's smarter or something with it, but so I have to go through the whole thing again. I made a covenant kind of, okay, Lord, if you let me, I will not kill it. I'll drop it in the middle of the freeway and let it, if it can make it, it can make it. No, I didn't, but I... I'm not going to, to and, uh, but I'll take it for a long, long, long ride. And I got the cat again. Another night, another thing, another struggle. 
but I caught it. And I drove and I drove. There's like two or three freeways, all sorts of riverbeds, all sorts of cities, everything. I took it a long way. Dropped it off in a riverbed by near heading towards Barstow. I was serious. I drop it in and I see it into this riverbed, the wash, it says to Sacramento Riverbed. So I watched the cat, you know, go off, head away. And the thing is, I'm then I'm finally, all right, one, about a month goes by. I'm having dinner. And kid, everybody's quiet and stuff. I said, what's going on? Come on, someone's going on. Yeah, the dad didn't. My, my wife says, don't say it. Don't tell him now. Let him eat his dinner. I said, what is it? And they said, the cat is back. <laughs> it can't be back. And here, a few nights later, we get a knock on the front door. And here, there's a, uh, you know, I go open the door. There's a man standing there. He's got tears in his eyes. And he asked me, he says, do you have a, a, a black cat with white? And I said, why? And he, he said, I feel terrible. I was just coming around the corner. And the cat ran out in the street. I couldn't stop. I hit the cat. And he says, it's over here in your next door neighbor's lawn. I knocked on their door and they said they thought it might be yours. I don't know what to do. And they said, could you come and see if it's your cat? Well, the cat, he, it was very close to its eternal reward. And at any rate, so I go out and I look at this cat. I can't believe it. And the cat looks at me and goes, <laughs> and the, the fellow says to me, he says, oh, no, it doesn't even recognize you. <laughs> I'll never, I say, oh, I think he does. <laughs> we know each other really well by now. But there should be something that we are willing to do, whatever it is. To have something, how deeply, the Lord looks at us, how, how deeply do you want victory in your life? How sincere are you about it? Are you willing to truly go to war? And then the last word, in verse 13, and he then goes on, and he says, But yield yourselves unto God, as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. So now the thing is, now what you do, you want victory. It's not just simply there where you look and you reckon him dead. You now stop. He's not going to reign, and I'm not going to yield. And the battle is a battle is a battle that you fight, and you're willing to fight it. As long as that cat's alive. As long as that nature is still there for the rest of your life. You look there and say, I'm going to do business with you, but and I'm willing to do that. But at the same time, I am deliberately choosing to yield my members of, as instruments righteousness. Now I'm going to consciously I, and, and learn the language. I'm going to study the language. I'm going to learn the culture. I'm going to learn the behavior. I'm going to take my members that were once under the control of these things and mocked and ridiculed and defeated. I'm now going to take these members that once lived in that world, spoke its language, knew its behavior, lived ruthlessly or selfishly or arrogantly or lustfully or angrily or whatever all the things and what we did to survive. But now I looked there and I said, you will not reign over me. And now we look there and he says, but yield your members. Now you commit, I am going to study the language of heaven. I'm going to take my members and I'm going to yield them to these. You know, the interesting thing, this friend, Harold, the interesting thing about him is he graduated 
magna cum laude from USC School of Law. Brilliant scholar, brilliant man, brilliant attorney. He was somebody, he just didn't stop living the way that he was. But the way that, that, that a person is transformed is now I deliberately yield my members as instruments of this, of this new life, this new language, this new government. Now there that they were when members that were once caught up in all of these old things, I yielded to them. They ran my life now that I, it's not just simply stopping them, but it's deliberately to stop them that I may entirely study and learn my new world. That I can succeed in it. That I can bring, you know, honor and glory to the, the, to the life that, that saved me and redeemed me and changed my life and changed my world. And you know, the interesting thing is a lot of times, you know, we, we, there, there, there are sins of commission. And then there are sins of omission. A sin of commission is just the flagrant things that we just do in our own nature. But yet at the same time, there are sins of omission. In other words, what I should be doing now that I am trying to stop doing what was wrong, the life that I am now to be living, we don't really give ourselves fully to it. We don't find ourselves, I want to learn this language. I want to learn what makes it tick. I want to learn everything I possibly can within it. And to me, that where somebody actually now looks and realizes that the ultimate reason that we, he says, I brought you out of Hungary. I brought you out of the world. I brought you from one side of eternity to the other is that you might live in this one and yield your members as instruments of it. Then now you can yield to it. It's not just simply stopping what I was doing. But now there, I, mean, I was one of those, when I got saved, I lived in one house. I had all these same friends all of my life. And when I got saved, I didn't know any Christians. I didn't, you know, and then when I went to church, because now, okay, my family had got to go to church, and they were all saved. I was the last one. They'd get me off to church, but I was awkward in it. I wasn't very comfortable. My comfort zone was all these guys I grew up with, grammar school, high school, college, partied with, fraternity world. All of this world that was so far, and now I go and I sit down in church, and I look around in church, and everybody, everybody's so different than all of my friends. I didn't know how to identify with them. And you know the Bible says that we're peculiar people, and if you don't know that, look around. <laughs> You're peculiar, believe me. We're all peculiar. I can remember actually sitting in church one time, feeling awkward. Do I even fit here? I knew I loved the Lord, but I can actually remember telling the Lord, "Lord, I want you to know I love you." But I don't like your friends. I didn't think much. I just didn't, I didn't know how to fit in. It was so different than my world. But realizing there, and then I went back and forth and struggled for a period of time until I realized that I'm never going to have victory until I entirely learned the language. I quit the fraternity. I walked away from all of these other relationships that had, you know, not so wholesome effects on my life. And I found myself, I'm going to church, I'm going to Bible study, I'm going to get in some sort of a group, you know, with, with, with other guys. I get to prayer meetings, fellowship. I find myself looking there if I truly mean business. And I just look at all the list of things that you have here, of looking there and committing to it. Matthew 12:43, Jesus there, he talks about when an unclean spirit is driven out of a man, there, but now the unclean spirit there, it walks through, it seeks a place to rest, it doesn't find any. 
So he returns back to the house that he came out of, and he finds that it's empty, and it's swept. But there he looks, it's just an empty house, and he enters back in, and now the state is worse than the first. Jesus said, you know, that you can go clean out the house. You can go and look and say, I've got to stop, stop, stop. I'm going to fight, fight, fight. I'm going to discontinue this. I don't want to speak the language. I don't want to do that behavior. I don't want to think the thoughts. I don't want to live that way any longer. But at the same time, good that you want to walk away from. But if you don't fill it with something, now it'll come back. I don't know how many times through the years I've seen people come to Christ and initially they mean business. They're in church. They can't get enough. They got their Bible. Every time the church door is open, they're in there. They're loving the Lord. They're worshiping. They're praying. They, they're excited. They're trying to get going. But at the same time, these, these things that maybe they thought would do instantly be transformed. And now they go on with some of the real battles that go on there for Christ to really be enthroned and to really be in power. And, they, and then they're, they, they're trying to stop, trying to stop, trying to, you know, all these other things. But next thing you know, they'll get a wedge, they'll get back. And finally one day, they just kind of cave. But it's something there, the real victory hopefully we all want is that we want to say, Lord, I want complete victory. And I'm willing. I want there, I'm, I'm going to reckon it. I'm going to, you know, I, I, it's not going to rain. I'm not going to yield, but I am going to yield my members to you fully. St. Augustine, he wrote a book, many, you know, the first early church, famous book, The Confessions of St. Augustine. But in it, I'm not going to get it right because it was so many years ago I read it, but at any rate, Augustine, his mother did not want to, he was a very handsome young man, evidently, outgoing, personable, and, but he always, as a young kid, wanted to go to Rome. Well, that was the seat of decadence, of corruption, of everything that was wrong in the world. His mother prayed, God, don't let him go to Rome. Don't let him go to Rome. Well, he went to Rome. And he gets to Rome, and the next thing you know, the whole world, the whole lascivious lifestyle, the whole behavior, all of it. He's living with a woman there and, uh, and here, but it's finally the conviction, the emptiness is that his mother had shared, and mother shared, he realized my mother was right. I don't want this life. I don't want it. And he ends up giving himself to the Lord. And when he did, he, he immediately, he went back home. He took a few of the things out of it there where he lived with this woman, took a few things and disappeared. Just disappeared. No letter, no answer, no where, anything at all. He just left. Some period of time goes by and one day he's walking down the street and he sees this woman walking at him in the other direction towards him. And there he just immediately, he goes across the street to avoid her. Well, somehow or she saw him. She goes running to him. She grabs him. Augustine. Augustine. Don't you recognize me? It's, I don't know her name, Mildred or whatever. And he looked at her, stared at her for a moment, and he said, Well, you might be Mildred, but I'm not Augustine. Good day, madam. And he turned and he walked away. And until somebody is really willing to look at all these things that have a grip and say, I want to commit myself to the kingdom. I'm going to be in his word. I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to be in fellowship. I want to learn the language. I want to yield my members as instruments of righteousness. Paul says there's where the victory comes from. It's the only difference between one person that walks in the fullness of blessing and the other. And as we have these struggles, we all do. 
John says, if a man says he has no sin, he's a liar. God's not with him. We all have that Adamic, arrogant, self-willed nature, and it is as real today as it was. We came into the world. It's there, and it's as powerful, and it wants to rule. It wants to have dominion, but Paul says, sin will not have dominion over you. And when I look and say, I don't want it either. I want that victory. And when that's what you want, the Lord has designed it in such a way, yes, it's a battle. But the battle is love. The battle is simply there that just like somebody would fight for their, their, their marriage, fight for their family, fight for their children, they're willing to fight for heaven against an internal battle within their own skin. And we all have Adam. The issue is, is have we gone to war? Saying, I'm done with you. And then tomorrow, I'm done with you. And then a week, I'm done with you. Amen? Amen. Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, we pray that you would help us today to have a true victory, that there would be something in us that could just snap. We would look at these things that mock us, ridicule us. We sit here, Lord, why are we in church? We love you. Why are we in church? We want victory. We want to, we want to be filled with you. We want you to transform our life. We want to be filled with the love of God, with hope, the joy, the peace. That nature, Lord, that's what we long for. And we pray, Lord, that today that something would happen within us because this has been done across the board equally for every one of us. Now we must reckon it to be so. Accept it. Accept it as fact. And then, Lord, now say, let's go to war. Now, because that's been done, I want to drive its influence and control for my life. So, Lord, help us, strengthen us, give us victory in our homes, our marriages, our families. Lord, where way we can hurt ourselves, hurt one another, struggle, fight, anger, that nature is still around. Lord, help us and strengthen us to put our foot down and to find victory in you. For sin will not have dominion. Help us, Lord, keep it under control. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.